0: Okay, you can be making your way back to your seats. Welcome. Wow, this is a full room for a nasty Sunday. Boy, well done. Goodness, church, you're wonderful. Uh, Welcome to Dallas Bible Church. We're glad you're here. If you are between the grades of kindergarten and fifth grade, I'm going to go ahead and ask you to do something brave. Just stand up for me right now. Can you stand up? Wave at me. I want to see you all of you. Great. We've got more. Now stay standing. We've got more that aren't standing up, but I want to tell you something. You are our church. You are you are not a distant far-flung future church. You are our church. Your job in this body is just as important as mine. Pastor Aaron and your moms and dads, you help us see Jesus better and you are always, 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 always welcome in this room. Always. Now, now for the next few minutes, I'm going to be a little bit more boring than I normally am on Sunday mornings. So I'm just going to ask that you stick with me. I'll bounce back and forth from adults to kids. Adults, I may also be more boring than you get normal Sunday mornings. Also stick with me. Kids, you can have a seat. If this is your first time here or first time in a long time, we're continuing a series through the life of Jesus. You can go ahead and open up your Bibles. Our passage today is Matthew 21, verses 10 through 13, the cleansing of the temple. Go ahead and be opening there. Well, we uh, we had it all figured out. Adam Wakefield and I, my best friend and neighbor, all growing up. It was summer 2003, somewhere late in the first Bush administration. And we got on our bikes and headed across town for a pickup football game. Now, let me paint a little bit of a picture about the man you see here before you today because he did not always look like this. And I know this might be a surprise, but when I was in middle school, I wasn't the coolest kid. (laughs) Probably pretty surprised blame my mother she used to dress me in strange ways she she loved buying these cargo shorts for me that were like basically pants they hung down to mid calf like what's a 13 year old need all those pockets for anyway <laughs> his shame apparently and i love these life is good shirts you know those guys like the guy riding a jeep or a bike and waving and so and i was chubby too i was like the weight i am now but like just squished me. (laughs) Now Adam, my best friend, he was not like that at all. He was kind of the opposite of me. He was, he'd already hit his growth spurt. He was tall. He was strong. He was athletic. He was coordinated. I was not. I was not very good at sports. I couldn't catch a ball. Couldn't throw one. And he was well liked. So when we got on our bikes and we were riding to this football game, Adam turned to me and said, okay, here's the plan. I'll probably be a captain know that I'm going to save you as the last pick because you're our secret weapon. (laughs) Okay, Adam, I love you. Just wait, I'm going to pick you. It's okay, you're our secret weapon. People don't know that you're actually pretty good. So we show up to this field and we line up against the wall. You guys remember this, right? You remember how this goes? What a terrible feeling. And, and one by one, our captains, Adam being one of them, starts picking people for their team. I'll take Jacob. I'll take Craig. I'll take Dan. And you work your way down to a smaller and smaller group of people. And I remember at the end of it, uh, the other team, not Adam's team, had seven players, and Adam had six, and he had the last pick. And there's me and another cargo-shorted brother named Sean Porter standing next to me. And I'll never forget this moment. Adam takes his finger, and he's thinking. And I'm saying, what are you thinking? I'm the secret weapon. Pick me. And he takes his finger, and he lowers it towards me. And he goes, Sean Porter. I'm the Manhattan Project. I'm the secret weapon. Me, not Sean. That feeling stinks, right? You guys have been there. I tell that story because I think all of us in this room have experienced something like that at one point, where someone looks at you and says, Sean Porter, pushes you out, leaves you on the outside where you are excluded. And I remember sitting there watching that football game and just thinking, this stinks. This stinks. Exclusivity, pushing people out, kids. What I mean is leaving people behind. Exclusivity angers God. It makes them angry. I've entitled my message today, Exclusion in the Hands of an Angry God. It's one thing when we're talking about a, a football game or your high school homecoming or rushing for your frat. It's another thing entirely when we're talking about the body of Christ. When we're talking about excluding people from this gathering. I'm going to tell you a story, and not because it's a good story, it's a hard one to hear. This past fall, we had our community block party. Uh, We have lots of inflatables out front. We have costumes. I was a vampire. I don't know if you remember. Uh, We give candy out, we do games, and we invite our community around to join us. And John Sparks, one of our volunteers, was greeting some neighborhood kids who showed up. And their question was, can we get in for free? John said, well, yeah, of course you can get in for free. Well, we need to go home and tell our parents. John said, well, where are your parents? To which the kids replied, both Hispanic. They said that DBC was probably the not, not the right kind of church to come to if you're Hispanic. They said we probably wouldn't be welcome there. Now that hurts, right? Right? That hurts you. That's no fun. And that's not the message we're intending to send out at all. But somehow we have taken our finger, and whether we mean to or not, excluded someone. What does Jesus do when he encounters this? Remind me to go back to that story about that family, because it's got, it's got a good ending. So if I don't mention it before communion, Tori, will you yell at me? Thank you. Okay. What does Jesus do when he encounters this? You, not you. Exclusion. Exclusion angers God. Take a look at this passage today, Matthew 21. We're going to see how Jesus deals with it, and then we're going to talk about a couple ways we can model how Jesus deals with exclusivity. So look with me. It's on the screens if you don't have your Bible. Matthew 21.10. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was shaken, saying, who is this? And the crowds kept saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus went into the temple complex, and he drove out all those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. Exclusivity angers God. Jesus is angry in this passage. If you're like me, it kind of doesn't feel right. It's like watching that person you know who's always smooth and even-keeled just lose it. Like I always, as a kid, pictured Jesus with like a very monotone voice and not a lot of emotion. But that's not what we see here. We see an angry God. We see a God who is upset. He's not lost his mind on people, but he is angry and he is acting. And also, if you're like me, you may have interpreted this passage in the past as Jesus being angry because people are selling things in church. Is that anyone else? That's that's what I kind of always thought. In fact, I remember as a child, probably eight years old, seeing a girl selling uh, Girl Scout cookies in our fellowship hall. And going over to her and saying, you're making my father's house a den of thieves. I'll take a box of (laughs) Tagalongs. Is that what Jesus is talking about? Is he talking about Girl Scout cookies in the fellowship hall? No, thank you. I don't think so either. I don't think so either. For us to really understand what's going on in this passage, we first need to grapple with some of the context of the story. Um. At this point in Jesus' life, we're in, nearing the end of his recorded ministry. So he's coming to Jerusalem. He's been greeted by children and adults with the palm branches. Hosanna, Hosanna, save us. You remember the story, kids? He's on the back of a colt. People are welcoming into the city and Jerusalem is teeming with people. It is packed, packed, wall to wall. And in about a week, he is going to go to the cross and die. And the first thing he does, he comes into the city and right away makes his way up to the temple. Now, when you hear that word temple, we all probably picture different things. Maybe you picture um, Legends of the Hidden Temple. Anyone remember that show? Maybe none of my generation. Uh, not a lot of 28-year-olds here. Um, <laughs> Do you uh, you ever think of, like, uh, the Temple of Doom, maybe? Maybe that's a better reference for you guys. Indiana Jones? Some people, okay. Maybe you think of Temple, Texas, where you're always stuck in traffic forever and ever, amen. I don't know what you think of, but for the ancient Jew, when they think of the word temple, they think pride and joy. The Temple of God in Jerusalem? That's our place. Wow, have you seen that building? It is amazing. It is amazing. In fact, uh, it was once said that you've never truly seen a great temple until you've seen Herod's temple in Jerusalem. Uh, This place is huge, huge, huge. Can you throw up the diagram for us, Evelyn? So here's a diagram of it. Um, If you look at that space, that's the entire temple complex. It's about 24 football fields big, something like 1.5 million square feet. In fact, when it was constructed, it was the largest earthen constructed platform in the world and it remains so today so the mountain it was built up on was to be huge uh, and it was ornate it was wonderful it would be kind of like maybe the way we would think of the statue of liberty if you were an ancient jew oh the temple yeah that's our place that's ours have you seen that place Oh, it's in Jerusalem, and it is wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And for us to understand how the temple works, we need to kind of look at some of that structure. So if you look up at the large building in the middle, you see that? That's the court of the priests. You could only enter the court of the priests if you were a Levite man who had obeyed the law. That's where the priests would come before God and offer sacrifices. Inside there is the Holy of Holies. Maybe you guys have heard of that, where the Ark of the Covenant rests. And God's glory dwells. And then we're going to work our way out from there with a series of courtyards. So the one nearby, that little wall around that big building, that's the court of the Israelites. You could only go in there if you were a man. A grown Jewish man. Not a child. Not a woman. A man. The next court out is the court of the women. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. That's where you could go if you were a woman to worship. So we're working our way out from the glory and presence of God. And then that huge area on the diagram, you see those like little black dots look like ants? That's the core of the Gentiles. It's where everyone can come. You're all welcome to come here and worship in the core of the Gentiles. And and maybe if you're like me, this whole system seems a little odd, maybe even a little wrong. Uh, I think for us 21st century Westerners, it feels weird that God would say, you can be here but not here. And and maybe it's right that we feel that way because Jesus is about to blow this thing up. In just a few days, Jesus is about to destroy this system. The temple of God is going to be open for all. The curtain is going to tear in two. And the invitation is for all people to share in God's glory. But at this point, it's not like that. But lest we think that that mission of everyone come in is only found in the New Testament, I want to read for you something from the Old Testament that tells us about why this temple was built and God's heart for the one who has been excluded in the outside. Uh, in 1 Kings eight forty one, you don't have to turn there. Solomon prays before God as he's dedicating this temple. So he's built the temple and he's telling everyone why I've built this and he's praying for God to bless it. And here's what he says. Just, just listen to these words. Even for the foreigner, the outcast, the outsider, who is not of your people but has come from a distant land because of your great name, may you hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all the foreigner asks. So listen to his prayer, answer his prayer. Then all people on earth will know your name. To fear you as your people Israel do, and to know that this temple I have built is called by your name. So, from the very beginning, the purpose of this temple is not just for Jews. It's not just for the elite. It's not just for the insiders. It's for those who have been excluded. God has said the system here is that people from the outside can come in, pray to God, see their prayers answered, and then glorify Him. Drawn, blessed, Glorify. That's important. I didn't do this in the first service, but repeat after me. Drawn. drawn, Blessed. blessed. glorify. Glorify. Hang on to that. The purpose of the temple. People will go out all the world and say, hey, I encountered this God in Israel, Yahweh, and folks, I don't think there's any other God. You ought to hear what happened to me there. That was the purpose of the temple. But by the time Jesus came on the scene, this purpose had been corrupted. It wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. Luke is explicit that this area he enters into the temple is called the court of the Gentiles, that outside court, that giant area there, court of the Gentiles. And it wasn't functioning as it was supposed to be. There were salesmen there, dove salesmen, ox salesmen, lamb salesmen, people providing necessary goods and services. In fact, things that are actually provided in the Bible, you've got to sell doves for people in the temple itself. So picture with me, if you will, what message this sends the Gentile, the one who's been excluded. You come to Jerusalem, you've heard of Yahweh, and you say, I've heard of Yahweh, I've heard of this temple, I've got to check it out. I've got some things that I need for him to heal in my life, I'm going to pray. And maybe you kneel down and you have a prayer that someone taught you in Hebrew, and you say, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Doves, get your doves. Anyone want a dove? Get them all the fresh, get them all the doves. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Change, get your change. Anyone need change? Can you see where that would send you a message? Do you get it? It'd be like if we took the dumpster and moved it up to Brian Radabaugh's office. What message would that send him? You're not welcome here and your fantasy football game is trash. Get out of here. We don't need you. You don't have to speak it explicitly to send a message. And that's the message that's sent to the Gentiles in this moment. How is the temple of God going to accomplish its proper purpose if we don't have space for outsiders, those who are excluded? So what does Jesus do? What are we supposed to do? I don't think anyone necessarily wanted the Gentiles to be pushed out. It was just kind of something that was happening unintentionally. And what does Jesus do? Well, look, verse 12. He goes into the temple complex. He drives out all those buying and selling in the temple. He overturns the money changers' tables and the chairs of those selling doves. He does something. Get that. He does something. The first point I have for you today about exclusivity is the battle against exclusivity is always active and never passive. Always active and never passive. You see, the things we do in our lives, the signals we send to others, are always going to err towards leaving people out unless we make an intentional effort to bring them in. That's what Jesus does. He doesn't just sit there and think, well, maybe they should know that they're welcome here. Of course they're welcome here. It says so in the Bible. Does he say that? No, he does something. The battle against exclusivity is always active and never passive. Whether you realize it or not, you are always sending signals to other people. We see this in nature. A porcupine's sharp spine say, don't touch me. A poison dart frog's bright collaring says, don't eat me. Cargo shorts say, don't date me. <laughs> We're always sending signals to other people. Whether we realize it or not. And, and though we may not be trying to say, you're not welcome here, you are excluded, we may be sending that signal even if we don't want to be. So, so what do we do? You know, I, I think in our brains we see exclusion as this blatant thing, as holding up a sign on your, on your clubhouse that says, no girls allowed. Oh, gosh, wow. <laughs> I wish you would have gasped like that when I said I wasn't cool in middle school. <laughs> or more seriously white's only over a water fountain. Like those things do happen and they do happen in the church, but more often the way we exclude people is far more sneaky. There's no sign in the court of the Gentiles that says no Gentiles here. But they were excluded nonetheless. It's subtle. It's so subtle. And we're always sending signals, so we need to be active against those. We need to always be asking ourselves, am I the kind of person that's approachable? Am I the kind of person who's sending out signals of inclusion and of welcomeness? And so what does Jesus do to do this? What are the actions he actually does? Well, the first thing he does is he puts people above preferences. People, preferences. You see, what they were doing in the temple was a preference. In the Bible, it had required them to sell sacrifices near the temple, and there was no law in the Old Testament that said you couldn't do it in the temple. This is not a clear black and white issue. In fact, only two years prior to this event, Caiaphas, the leader of the Sanhedrin, gathered all the Jewish leaders together and said, you know how it's been getting like more and more crowded in Jerusalem over Passover? I got an idea. So you know how we normally have the market at the Mount of Olives? That's where it used to be. What if we took it and moved it into the court of the Gentiles? Because really there's like not many Gentiles there anywhere. There's no like law in the Bible that says we can't. Uh, and we need to provide these sacrifices. So what if we just took that market and moved it into the court of the Gentiles? Okay. And this was not an uncontroversial decision. You should know there was actually riots about it. But the religious leaders said, it's just more convenient this way. This is our preference Two options, the option I prefer, move the market into the court of the Gentiles. Preference, 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 preference. And they had put that preference above people. I'm going to tell you a secret right now. You ready? Kids, adults, there's not a lot of rules governing how we do things in this building. There are rules as to how we do church, but as to, like, how we do this worship service, how we do, like, a lot of our activities, in the Bible there's actually not that many rules. Uh, My in-laws were recently at a church in Eugene, Oregon, and I was aghast when I first heard this, but they sat down, and they played a worship set, and the pastor came up and said, all right, everyone, taking a break, and they just took a half hour. (laughs) Big, growing, you know, church plant, super successful, some people would go to Starbucks, get coffee. Other people would grab a, you know, a drink in the foyer with their friends. I'm sure there were introverts that hid in the bathroom. Um, and then they would come back and they would preach their sermon and they'd go home. And when I first heard that, I said, well, that's not church. It's a preference. Lots of the things that we do here are preferences. And we do them because we want to reach people. The way we do worship on Sunday morning is because we want to see God honored. We think it's the best way to honor God in our culture. The reason we paint our walls a new color is because we want our building to be attractive to people. Like these are preferences. They're neither good nor bad, but when those preferences get in the way of people, then you have a problem. And this can happen in our own lives when we have preferences that push people out. So what if, what happens if your preference is to eat? lunch with uh, a family or, or a friend after church on Sunday. That's a good preference. What if your preference is to eat with that same family every week? It's not wrong. But what if your entire lifetime you only stay with the same families and same friends? What signal is that sending other people? Can you see where that preference might be getting in the way of people? Can you see that? Can you see how you might subtly and unintentionally be pushing people out? If you're not actively stepping, if you're not actively fighting exclusion, you you will be exclusive. You put people above preferences. I'll give you another example. This one might be a hot topic. This thing right here. So there are Christians, good people I know, fabulous sons and daughters of God, Leaders who I wish I had never followed on Facebook. You know what I'm saying? And people who are mature Christians following Christ who post nonsense all week long. Do you think you will be approachable to an outsider if the glimpse they get of you is one of exclusion? Maybe don't lead with your eight-point view on traditional marriage with a person you're trying to show the love of Jesus. Non-believers, they don't believe what we believe. They're non-believers. They don't have to. But I'm afraid that some of us are sending signals to others through this that are unintended. I, I don't know how else to put this. Always filter this through love. And I'm not saying don't speak your mind. Don't hear me there. People need to stand up for truth. Please stand up for truth. But always do so with the filter of love. And know that most people, they don't see how you act on a week-to-week basis. They see you through this. Is it wrong? Well, it's probably not wrong. Is it a preference? It's a preference. Can that preference get in front of people? Oh, yeah. Can that preference push people out? Oh, yeah. Definitely, definitely, definitely. Definitely. Be very, very careful. And just so you know, I'm not calling out anyone explicitly in this room. I haven't been on Facebook in like months because of this. Um, So if you posted a really hot take yesterday, I'm not talking about you. Um, Maybe I am. No, I'm not. (laughs) Always put people above preference. You can see that sometimes in the way we worship. You know, how many people in here grew up listening to hymns in Sunday morning church? Almost all of us. Um, There are people in this body that have given up their preference for the way they worship so that we can be accessible to all people. I I love worshiping with my grandfather, Bud, because Bud raises his hand and he sings, even though I know he wishes he was singing a hymn. He's put preferences aside for people. We always put people first. Put people above preferences. That's what Jesus does. Jesus says, I'm not afraid to walk over to the Mount of Olives to get my sacrifice. I don't care about that. I want people to be able to worship in the core of the Gentiles. That's what I want. What you guys are doing is wrong. And he's angry. Active, active, active. Put people above preferences. That's the first. Model that Jesus gives for us when we're trying to include others, when we're battling exclusion, put people above preferences, step out of your comfort zone, do it. The second thing he shows us in how we battle exclusivity, this active step, is to speak truth to power. Speak truth to power. You see where he does that here? He walks up to verse 13, he walks up to the religious leaders, he says, It is written, my house will be a house of prayer but you are making it a den of thieves. Some translations say robber's cave. I like that. supposed to be a house of prayer. You are making it a den of thieves. Unless we think I'm making too much of this exclusivity bit, unless you're arguing with me in your brain and saying, no, it's Girl Scout cookies. These are two passages from the Old Testament, Isaiah 56, house of prayer, where God is talking about how his house will draw in all people from all nations that all will be open to the gospel and they will all see his face. This is what it's supposed to be. And Den of Thieves is referencing Jeremiah 7, which is a rebuke of the Jews for making too much of themselves. And the Pharisees would have heard that. And he speaks truth to power. And there are consequences. Don't forget who we follow. This man's going to be on a cross because he does this and things like this. We speak truth to power as Christians and especially do so when people are being dehumanized or left out, when people are being excluded. We speak up for that. I want to tell you about a man I read about this past month, Benjamin Lay. Does anyone recognize that name in here, just out of curiosity? Benjamin Lay? I did not at all. This is a person who's been shoved in the back of your history books. And I think it's really interesting. Benjamin Lay, uh, in 1738, had a message for the people around him this is a a very strange man. He's about four foot tall. He lives in a cave, and he lives off of roots and berries in the woods. And he's a radical Quaker. His beliefs mean a lot to him. So in September of 1738, Benjamin takes a book, and he hollows it out with a knife, makes a little compartment. Then he takes an animal bladder, and he fills, fills it with red pokeberry juice. So Uh, imagine this kid's like a water balloon full of red juice and he puts it down in this hole he's made in the book. And he puts on a a military uniform, probably a small one, and, and an overcoat and he carries the book into town where the national meeting of the Quakers is going on. And at this point, many of those Quakers were making lots of money off of buying and selling people. Slaves. And Benjamin, four foot tall, walks in an article I read said he had a booming voice. Takes the book up in the air, draws his sword, and yells, slavery will be the death of the Christian church. Stabs the book with the sword. Red juice splatters out over everyone. Now, that's a statement. <laughs> now these were leaders in the church. These were leaders in the community. And they threw him out. He said, we don't have any more need of you. Go back to your cave. Get out of here, Benjamin. You want to guess what happened? More and more people started showing up at Benjamin's cave. Slaves. They said, you spoke up for us. Can you help us? So for years after that, that cave became a place where people would come and seek refuge because he spoke truth to power. And what he didn't realize he was starting at the time was the beginning of the modern abolitionist movement. You've never heard of this guy. He's he's one of the first guys... Who will lead to this movement in America and in England that will free the slaves that's led by the church. He speaks truth to power and he shows value to the one that's been excluded. Not Zane, Sean. How do we show value to that person? We speak truth to power. Kids. Kids, look at me. I want to see your eyes. This is the thing I do on Sunday morning. You will never have the opportunity to stand up for people who are left out like you do right now. In all my years of life, I never had the opportunity to stand up for people who were being excluded like I did in elementary school, middle school, and high school. I saw more cruelty, more bullying, more leaving people out than I have ever seen since. And if you will speak up and say, that's not right. That word you're using, that's not kind. This is my friend. This is a person. Even if you don't like the person, if you will speak up, if you will speak truth to power, hear me you will change the world. You will. That's what we need. We speak truth to power. That's what Jesus shows us. He says, you are making my house a den of thieves. And he doesn't care what happens to him. He doesn't care if he's left out. He doesn't care if he's grouped in with the people who are excluded. He doesn't care if he's called something else. He speaks truth to power. And what happens when he does? He does. You see, in all things, we are active against exclusivity. We make a step. We put people over preferences, and we speak truth to power. What happens when Jesus does this? I love the Bible. Look at the next passage, 21, 14 through 17. I never saw this before. I've read this book dozens of times, and this popped out for the first time. And I think it's intentional. I think we don't see this for a reason. I'll tell you why. 21, 14 through 17. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple complex, and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did and the children shouting in the temple complex, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. People are going to be mad when you speak truth to them. And said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus told them. Have you never read? You have prepared praise from the mouths of children and nursing infants. There's a group of people involved in this story that we haven't talked about. They've been on the outside. Matthew hasn't mentioned them, I think for a reason, because they are invisible. Blind and lame. And this is a group of people that we know from extra-biblical evidence have been excluded from worship in the temple of God. In fact, the priests and the teachers had used two passages in Scripture, one in Leviticus 21 and one in 2 Samuel 5, talking about blind and lame people to say, Look, I'm sorry, you're not welcome here. Not my rules. Go to the court of the Gentiles. And just a quick side note, be very, 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 very careful anytime you use scripture to exclude people. Make sure you got it right. And still be loving even if you do. So you have these blind people and these lame people, and picture with me, if you will, what it would be like. You've been coming to the temple all your life since you were a blind boy, and you're sitting there, and there's clamor, and there's noise around you. The past couple years it's gotten noisier. Doves, doves, change, change, and you're saying alms, or maybe you're praying, Lord, I wish you would heal me of this blindness. It's Passover. Please step in front of my sins. Heal me. And it gets louder, and it gets louder, and it gets louder, and then all of a sudden, (sighs) silence. And you hear a Galilean accent. A country boy teaching in the corner. And you think, what is that? And so you go to him. Don't read through this too quick. The blind and the lame came to him. They came to him. They're blind. They can't walk. That means they're groping to him. That means they're crawling to him. And they're doing so because their space is finally made. Someone put people above priorities. Someone spoke truth to power and they came to him. This is what we want. If you're here and you feel like an outsider, you feel like you've been pushed out, we don't care what you think about us at Dallas Bible Church. We want you to see him. We want you to see him. And it's our belief that he is a good enough God that if you see him, you will be drawn to him. You will come to him. That's how good he is. And so that's what the blind and the lame people do. They're drawn to him, they come to him. And then what happens? They were healed. Picture this, you are blind, and the first person you see in the temple of God is God Himself. What a treat. You're missing it in there in the, in the court of the priests. God's out here with us. And they are healed, they see Him. This is what we want. We don't care if you look like us, dress like us, act like us, we want you to know Jesus Christ because He is best. He is good. So they, they're drawn, they're blessed. Boy, how cool is this? What happens next? The children shouting in the temple complex, Hosanna. People see it, and they glorify God. Does anyone remember what Solomon intended for the temple? Drawn, blessed, glorify. Jesus is is bringing it all full circle. He's doing what the temple was supposed to do and had never done before. Come see how good our God is. See him, see him, see him. Pray, have your prayers answered, outsider. Know him, feel him, and then leave glorifying him. Leave honoring him. That's what happens. Do you see that? Speak truth to power, we put people above preferences, and this is what happens. People see our good God, and they worship him. I have news for you today, church. Can anyone tell me what you see on the Temple Mount if you go there today? Just shout it out. There's a mosque, right? Mosque there. Ain't no temple on the Temple Mount. It's gone. It was gone shortly after Jesus said this. So what's the temple today? The Bible says that you are the temple of God. You, the church, are the temple of God. If someone who does not know Jesus comes here, they should be able to interact with you, see God's glory, have their prayers answered, and glorify Him. That is your purpose. And if we are pushing people out, if we are excluding others, I submit to you that we probably have an angry God on our hands. You are the temple of God. And for some of you here who don't know God, maybe this is your first time in church, maybe it's your first time in a long time, maybe you feel really uncomfortable right now. I'm sorry. Might be better next week. I want to tell you right now that that invitation to become God's temple is for you. It's for you. The Bible says if we place our faith in Jesus Christ, if we confess to him that he is Lord, then the God's Holy Spirit dwells in us, and you are as good as that center building where God's glory lives. You are invited in, and for the rest of us, we better check ourselves. I am convinced that if we are a church who puts people above preferences and who takes active steps to speak to power, that we will change the world. Now let me tell you about John Sparks and the two kids from the neighborhood. What John did was perfect, and this is why I love this church and why I think this church does really a pretty good job at all the stuff I'm saying. John said, can I come to your apartment? Let me walk back and talk to your parents. And so he did. He went back with those kids to their apartment, knocked on the door and said, we want want to let you know that you are welcome at our church and we would love for you to be there. And we're, we're sorry if we ever send a signal that you're not supposed to be. You are, you are here. And guess what happened? They got up. They came with them. They came to DBC. John knew what he was doing. He was speaking truth. He was putting people above priorities or above preferences. He was putting people first. It would have been really easy for him to say, oh, no, that's not the case. We welcome all people here. That's the easy thing. It's a lot harder to actually do it. Uh, Band and ushers, you may be coming forward. We're getting ready to enter a time of communion. Um, And as we enter that time...